Church family, if you have your copy of God's Word, let me invite you to take it and find the book of Luke, chapter 2, the Christmas story. Luke, chapter 2, whether you're using a device with an app on it that has Scripture or you have a printed copy as I prefer, I want to draw your attention to Luke, chapter 2, and we're going to be this morning in verses 8 through verse 20. 1965, a Charlie Brown Christmas launched or was produced, appeared, debuted on TV. And it begins in a very sullen way. Charlie Brown cannot catch the Christmas spirit. He is discouraged and depressed, and he's having a conversation with Linus. And Linus has a famous line. In the midst of Charlie Brown's depression and discouragement, he says, Charlie Brown, you're the only person I know who can take a wonderful season like Christmas and turn it into a problem. You ever know anybody like that? Everything they come to is a problem. We've been having a problem lately with Evie, our two-year-old. We're teaching her the Christmas story. And apparently this young lady has developed a high view of medicine and medical care because she insists that Jesus was born in a manger in a hospital. We say, no, he was born in a manger in Bethlehem. Nope, in a manger in a hospital. That's how she sees it. All of us face situations in life that risk robbing our joy. If you've ever watched a Charlie Brown Christmas, you'll know that right at the end, Charlie Brown has a light come on when Luke chapter 2 is read. The story of Christmas is the story of the birth of Jesus amidst all the fanfare and all the tinsel and all the decoration, all the commercial success of Christmas. It is about Jesus. And that restores, in a beautiful childlike way, Charlie Brown's joy in Christmas. We're in the Advent. Advent is preparation. Preparation, preparing our hearts for Christmas A few weeks ago, we began by focusing on the word peace and hope. Last week was peace. Two weeks ago was hope. This morning is joy. The next week will be love. And then on Christmas Eve, we will celebrate Christ as the light of the world. And when you celebrate Advent traditionally, you do it with the lighting of candles. So today would be, of course, the day represented by lighting of the pink joy candle. A candle representing joy. Joy and Christmas should be synonymous. What is joy theologically? When we think about joy, I don't want you to reduce it to just an emotion. It's perhaps the most powerful word of Christmas, but I think it's important that we separate it from just the holiday and we think about joy in a Christ follower's life. The New Bible Dictionary, one of many dictionaries that I enjoy using, defines joy this way. In both the Old Testament and the New Testament, and that's how they're uh, abbreviated in theological writing, OT, New T, if you're ever reading along, that's what they mean. In both the Old Testament and New Testament, joy is consistently both the mark or the mark of both individually of the believer and corporately of the church. It is a quality and not simply an emotion. The contrast would be happiness. Happiness is an emotion. Joy, biblically, is more of an underwriting quality, an optimism, a state of encouragement. 
It is ground, grounded upon God himself and indeed derived from him. The New Bible Dictionary editor goes on to add this, which characterizes the Christian's life on earth and also anticipates the joy of being with Christ forever in the kingdom of heaven. Now, we don't have time this morning to do a survey of the entire Bible's testimony of joy. But, but very quickly, just, just real quick, and you may want to jot these down. When we think about joy biblically, before we dive into our text, first of all, the joy of Jesus' followers comes from God. The psalmist says it this way in Psalm 1611. You make known to me the paths of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So the the biblical writers understood that proximity to God directly affected our joy. In the presence of a good and mighty king is joy. This carries over into the New Testament. Paul, in praying for the Roman church, says in Romans 15, May the God of peace fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. So not only is joy derived from God, a believer should want to receive constant refilling of joy. My bucket leaks. I get discouraged. I lose my focus. I forget the reality of an eternal God who is watching over me. I get distracted by my own sinful, selfish desires or the hurtful things that happen in the world. And so the scripture continually teaches that we go to the Lord not only because he is the source of joy, but then he fills us with joy. So joy comes from God. Secondly, not only does joy come from God, it's a fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5.22, when Paul is listing the characteristics of a Spirit-filled life, he contrasts that with the works of the flesh. Notice works are things that people do. I can do sinful things. I can have a sinful attitude. I can say a sinful word. I can harbor sinful feelings. But when the Spirit of God works in us, it's not so much what we do, it's what the Lord does in us and through us, so he uses the word fruit. This is what grows out of a relationship with the Lord. And of course, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, and then here we go, joy. It's a fruit of the Spirit. Third, real quick, survey of joy. The world is not supposed to be able to take our joy away when our joy is found in a relationship with Christ. Jesus, at the end of his life, The heat is being turned up. His days are numbered. He said, so you also have sorrow now. He's talking to the disciples about the separation that's happening and the confusion taking place in and around his arrest that is about to unravel right in front of their eyes. He says, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice. And then he says, and no one will take your joy from you. Jesus there is not referring to the second coming. He's referring to the resurrection. He said to his disciples, you're going to be confused and hurt and filled with sorrow, but you'll see me again come Sunday. And when you do, no one will take that joy from you. Very quickly, two more. Also, joy is a source of our strength. It's what keeps us going. The Nehemiah says it this way, And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your 
strength. I mean, you think about it. In your life, when everything around you would lead to circumstantial feelings of discouragement, when your joy is found in the Lord, that gives you the strength to do what the Bible says. And what is the, the, one of the Bible's most favorite words? To persevere, to be steadfast, to keep going. And then finally, of course, to get very personal, Jesus came to make that joy complete. You see, prior to Christmas, there was the joyful faith that a Messiah was going to come. But now, because of Christmas, he has come. And of course, Jesus said in John 15, 11, these things I have spoken to you, the truth about who he was, that my joy may be in you, and then watch, and that your joy may be full. I like my gas tank to be full. Unfortunately, I like my plate to be full, you know? I'd love to know one day my bank account would be full. It will never happen because my quiver is full. We like full. And Jesus said, my joy is going to be your joy, and I'm going to make your joy full. This is what joy should look like. But I know that may not be what you feel like. I, I, I don't, I'm sure I've preached on joy before, but I don't know if I've ever preached on joy in and around a Christmas season through a year that had so many reasons not to be joyful. Early this morning, the pastors and I meet for prayer on Sunday mornings, and we went over another list of folks in our church who have tested positive for COVID, and we prayed for them. The reality of that list happens every single day, and we recognize that God has been so gracious to protect so many people, and many of you have been infected and shown little to no symptoms. There are people in my life today who have it and are doing well, but we certainly continue to pray for them. But I also have people in my life who have it, and we're very prayerful because they have a vulnerable set of circumstances due to age or their health. Additionally, we understand the lack of joy in and around all of the changes that happen in a state and a federal level and wanting to know what will be a new administration's posture toward religious freedom and liberty and unfortunately the assault of the rights of the unborn and then the confusion about who to trust even in mainstream media. What, what, what is truth and what is not truth and the grappling for truth now that everything seems to be fluid and morally compromised. And then, and then when you compound that with economic problems, while some are bursting at the seams with business, other things are happening which show us there may be indications of struggle even next year. And then what do you do with a vaccine that has had little to no trials? For many, it is a life hope and a medical miracle. For others, they're suspect of his effectiveness. Who do you listen to? What should you do as a person? How do you make the best decision? And so 22. 20 has been this compilation of questions and confusion and doubt. It's one of the reasons why I'm so grateful for the growth of our church. And I believe that people are coming and listening and tuning in because they just want truth. They want the truth of God's word. And the truth is, in the midst of everything we faced, I stand before you today on the authority of God's word and lovingly, lovingly, gently, as a loving shepherd, challenge you. You should be the most joyful people in your life. 
You should be filled with joy. If everything we just sang is true in your life, if he has made your life a hallelujah because of a saving relationship with Christ, you have no reason not to be joyful. Joyfulness is not the absence of sorrow. I'm not encouraging you not to feel heartache. I understand that feelings of concern and anxiousness cannot be made to not exist in our lives. But joy is this underwriting constant state of trust and faith which exudes itself in confidence, not in the world, but in the Lord. One of my favorite quotes, I didn't even put it on the screen, but one of my favorite quotes about joy is that joy is the flag that flies high over the castle of a heart where the king lives. Joy says, I am fine because of who my God is. And if there is a place in the Bible where we see the most humble and lowly folks, the most poor and downtrodden, become joyful. It's in the account of Luke 2 when the birth of Jesus is announced to the shepherds. If you want to find your joy this Christmas, you can find it in Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 8 down through verse 20. Let's read that together in God's Word. I'll read aloud. Read along with me silently. And in the same region. Now that's a reference to verses 1 through 7 which tells us the story of the birth of Jesus. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. You've heard this read many times in many nativity scenes. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not for behold I bring you good news of great what is it church family? Joy. Those of you online, say it with me. Joy. Of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, I love that a worship service just broke out. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. A better translation than the one you grew up with. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. There probably were more newborns in Bethlehem that night, but he's the only one in a trough, lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. And as it had been told to them. Joy. It permeates this passage. How do you find joy this Christmas season? First, you find it in the Lord's inclusion. You find it in his inclusion. Let me say something to you today that may sound crude. If you know Christ as your Savior, we could stop 
right there and say that and that alone is enough for you to find joy. Because you did not find Christ, he found you. You did not die so that Christ would love you, he died for you. You did not do enough good things upon your understanding of God's word to somehow cancel out the bad things. He took all your sin and canceled them with the payment of his blood. And then, biblically speaking, upon his resurrection, the sufficient sacrifice which had been offered had been applied to you in the mind of God who knows all things. And then was revealed to you at a point in your life where you could understand that you needed him. And then his spirit empowered you to believe. Even my belief in Christ is dependent on him. And I recognize that the Lord has given us a measure of free will. But when I exercised my human feeble ability to lay my life down at the altar of God's grace... The sovereign hand of God showed himself to already be working to bring unto me salvation. And if you want to look for a beautiful place of beginning where this inclusion is, for lack of a better word, included in the story of God, it's the Christmas story. Kings often announce the birth of a coming prince. It was in antiquity a normal thing for the entire civilization around or underneath a ruler to hit pause and to wait with anticipation the birth of a baby boy. It's a big deal for a future king to be born. And yet God chose to announce the birth first and foremost, after of course the parents were told, to shepherds. Now, if you've ever heard a sermon on shepherds, you've heard the pastor say, shepherds are romanticized today, but they were considered the bottom of the barrel in first century Judea. These were not people who would have been esteemed or honored. In fact, the reality of spending most of your life away from towns and villages with livestock made you ceremonially unclean for the observation of many parts of the Mosaic law. And not only were there struggles with the cleanliness required in the actual Mosaic law, by the time of Jesus' birth, the twisted version of Judaism that ruled the day pretty much excluded them as unclean outsiders. No nobility, no recognition, no upper echelon established position was ever given to a shepherd. And God in his glory could have sang to anybody he wanted to. He could have sent the angel anywhere, but he chose to go to shepherds. And one of the things you notice in the Luke account is that throughout the whole gospel, Luke highlights Jesus' intentional effort to include the outsiders, the outcasts, the dirty, the unwelcome, the unclean, the unacceptable. The people that the religious of the world had disqualified, Jesus went to. Now, this is important. You'll hear many people say that, and then they use it to justify sin. Jesus never went to the outcast, to the outliers, to the dirty, to the unclean, to the immoral, to the leper, to the prostitute, to the drunk, to the tax collector. He never went to them and justified their behavior. 
and accepted them because of their moral bankruptcy. No, no, no. He went to them and offered an opportunity to be right with God. He announced to them good news. And we see this in the account. And it follows the account that has already taken place. This is the third angelic announcement. The first came to Zechariah who meets an angel of God and says, he says to Zechariah, your wife is going to have a baby well beyond her years. The second is when the angel of the Lord appears to Mary. And the third is when the angel of the Lord appears to the shepherds. And notice everybody has the same reaction. The moment this happens, they're fearful. Wouldn't you be? You're camping by yourself, hanging out, campfire, cup of coffee. Maybe you've just enjoyed a sandwich. It's dark, no one's around, and heaven splits open. And an angel says, Bill, Karen, Glenn, I don't know about you, I'm looking for a tent. I'm looking for an escape. I'm fearful. I'm fearful because I've never experienced anything like this. I'm fearful because everything I've ever read says that for a sinner to see the face of God is to immediately face judgment. I'm fearful because what if I'm not right with God the moment he shows up? But listen, when God moves in grace, there's no room for fear. The scripture says it this way, beginning in verse 8. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. But then the angel said, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news. That word, good news, is translated from the word we get our word, evangelism. To share the good news. I grew up singing that song, Share the Good News. Tell the good news that Christ has been born, that Christ has come. It's good news. It's not bad news. It's not news to be ashamed of. It's good news. And then the scripture goes on to say, I bring you good news of great joy. Now watch this. That will be for all people. Notice the inclusion. There's a reason he went to shepherds. He's sending us a message. He's saying, My redemption is not available only to the world's elite. I'm not interested in people who have built themselves up some self-righteous attempt to approach God. No, 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 no. I am for any person who would believe upon me. I seem to remember a verse that says that. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth upon him. But pastor, you just said... That God is the one who saves. That God is the one who initiates. So which is it? Does God initiate salvation in us? And are we totally dependent on his work to reveal in our lives and to open up our eyes to be, that are blinded to faith in Christ? Or does God wish that no man perish but that all have eternal life and that anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved? The answer, of course, as I've told you in my entire ministry is yes. Yes. Both are presented in Scripture. Do I understand how they both work together? I do not. Am I grateful that I have a whosoever God? Yes. And on the days when I fumble and bumble through life, am I grateful that my salvation is dependent on his character and not mine? Absolutely. I need him to be my Savior. I do not need to save myself to him. 
And when we begin to understand the great move of God, you should find joy that he included you. And this is a point where you cannot not preach the gospel. Are you included? You say, Pastor, how can I know? You can know by making sure you're saved. Where did we get so sophisticated that we stopped asking people to get saved? I don't want you to attend our church. That's not the goal. Glad you're here. Glad you're watching online. In the next few months, hope and pray that all of you online will come back and be here. Do I find great joy in presenting new members as we'll do at the end of the service? Sure. Does it mean a lot to me for you to join Laurel and I in tithing? We believe in it. Many of you do, and it supports the ministry of our church. Does it make me real excited when some of you get on airplanes and go to places that the gospel's not gone and share your faith? Sure. Does it matter to me that you business owners try to run your business and treat your employees in a way that honors Christ? Yeah. Does it mean so much to me to watch you bring your little ones in and teach them about the Lord and the importance of church? Absolutely. Are all those good and wonderful things we should encourage? Yes. But if we do all that and you never get saved, you're still going to hell. You have to get saved. How do you get saved, Pastor? You come to the end of yourself and you say, on my best day, my behavior is not going to make me right before a holy God. But he goes to shepherds. He sent his son for all people. And I have to get to a place in my life where I recognize I cannot put my faith in being a good person. I want to put my faith in a good God who loves wicked people like me. Yes, who loves people with hearts like mine that are capable of doing unbelievable good and unbelievable evil. And he loved us so much that he came so that we may have life in his name. So listen, throw the candles and the advent and the music and the light and the stars out. I don't care about those things if you miss heaven and make hell because no one ever told you this. You must be saved. And if you're not saved, you need to get saved today. Today. Today you need to get saved. You're not guaranteed tomorrow. I have no biblical grounds to tell you you get another opportunity to respond to God's grace than the one you're getting right now. But right now, if you trust Christ, he will save you. And if you have trusted Christ, then in the midst of everything you face, he included you, just like those shepherds. And that brings us joy. You want to find your joy this Christmas? Find it in his inclusion. Secondly, find it in his identity. I love what the shepherds are told. Look what the Bible says, beginning in verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David. Now, notice, here they come. A Savior who is Christ the Lord. Man, what a title. Savior, Christ, the Lord. The fascinating thing about this is that in the original language, there's no definite article. He's not a Savior. He's Savior. This is different from you and me. Today, I have the privilege of being your pastor. Won't always be that way. Wasn't always that way. In fact, I'm the fourth pastor of this church since its inception, and I hope and pray, unless the Lord returns, I am not the last pastor. Now, I'm not looking to turn my resignation in. I got a lot of kids to feed and a house to pay for, but the point is, 
There's going to come a day when I will be replaced. I don't get to retire. I enter them into the sunset. That's what old preachers do. But one day, while I will still be the same person, I won't have the same title. In human lives, we separate our name and our title, but not my Savior. His name is his title, and his title is his name. Because he is the Savior, not a Savior. There never was a Savior come before he came. There'll never be a Savior come because he did come. And there's not a need for a new Savior because his salvation is sufficient to keep on saving those who are going to be saved. And Christ, as anointed one, the Messiah, points to the fact that he has always been God's plan. Think about the manifestation of these titles in your life. Savior, the only way to salvation. We've hit that. I'm not going back to it. Christ, the anointed Messiah, the one God's people were looking for, and Lord, ruler of all things, all-knowing, in control of all things, and the only one worthy to rule your life. So one of the great applications of the Christmas story is this beautiful monologue. Born to you this day in the city of David is a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Is he your Savior? Do you recognize him as God's Messiah, Christ And is he the ruling force in your life? Is he Lord? You don't get to pick two. It's not one of the three. You know that great quagmire you find yourself in when the restaurants have that mixer appetizer where you can choose three of all the appetizers and order it as one? I need one that says choose nine. They all look good. It may be fried cheese tonight, but it could be potato skins tomorrow night. And don't. Let me miss some artichoke dip. And I do like those little sausages, especially the ones wrapped in the little blanket. And then in addition to that, if you got chips and salsa on there, I'm all in. I don't want to make a choice. I don't get to make a choice. Is he my Savior? But I don't really know him as Christ or Lord. Is he Lord? Is that, I'm going to do what he says, but I don't know him as Savior. Is he separate from the rest of the world, or is he the chosen anointed one? The word Christ comes from this idea of anointed one. It is loosely the New Testament equivalent to the Old Testament Hebrew word Messiah, Messiah. It is the Messiah who is Christ the Lord. And I love the fact that they mention all of these in one verse, his identity becomes my source of joy. Now, let's contrast that for just just a moment. When that doesn't happen, we're only faced with two options. We try to find our joy in circumstances or people. The the problem is, is that God's going to place in your life some people who are sources of joy. I mean, who doesn't want to be a source of joy? I want to be a joy to my family. I want to be a joy to you. Many of you are such a joy to me. My little girl and I were in a truck yesterday driving and I said, Lily, what do you think about when you think of joy? She said, I think about laughter, Daddy. I said, well, where do you get joy from? She, we were just talking, not, not theological, just where does your joy come from? She said, Daddy, I'm like you. I get my joy from people. She's right. She and I are extroverts. We're stimulated by people, and people bring me great joy. Experiences bring me great joy. Being outside brings me great joy. But all of those things are fleeting Some of the people in my life that have brought me the most joy have also failed me. And I am absolutely certain that there are people in my life that I have both been a source of joy and contempt. The same with experiences and circumstances. Even the things that I enjoy now have changed over the last 10 years. And they will continue 
to change. There are things that when I was 18, I'd be all in for. Now I'm like, hold up, somebody could get hurt. What you talking about? When I used to fall in the woods, I'd just jump up. Now I take inventory. I lay there a minute. I wiggle stuff. I make sure that I'm good before I get up. And there's going to come a day when I just won't get up. You'll just find, preacher died. Where was he? In a swamp somewhere. Yeah. We just put a cross in the ground and ordered a cake at church, had a reception. <laughs> the, 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 my life and my experience has changed. This is not bad, but it underlines and undergirds this point. If my joy, that deep abiding attitude and heart of optimism and encouragement is found in my marriage, my job, my position, my accomplishments, my children, my family. Listen, even my church family, it will not deliver. My joy has to be in the identity of a Savior who is Christ the Lord. You want to find your joy this Christmas, find it in his identity. And so they went. That's what the Bible says. Look what the scripture says beginning in verse 12. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes. Now, by the way, that in and of itself would not have been difficult to find in Bethlehem. But the next phrase would have. And lying in a manger. Humility. Humility. The best the world could give him was a barn. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those whom he is pleased. The old King James translated it, and on earth goodwill toward men. The problem is in the original structure of the sentence, he's not talking about goodwill toward all men. He's talking about peace toward those whom the Lord favors. One of the things you find in the false gospel of prosperity preaching is that this is going to be your year of favor. Go get the favor of God. You want the favor of God on you. And here's what you do to manipulate God to give you, give him your favor. The, the problem is, is that biblically, as is the case with many false teaching, there's a lot of words there that actually do have biblical precedence. yes. Yes, you can pursue the favor of God. Yes, I want the favor of God on my life. I pray for the favor of God on our church. Yes, we should celebrate the blessings of God in our life. But the problem with the prosperity gospel, the me-centered gospel, is that God becomes a means to an end. I pursue what he wants to get his favor. This verse underlines that my question, my motive, my posture is not how do I go get the favor of God, but do I live in some, such a way that I bring favor to God? How much favor am I bringing to God? Because if I live in such a way to bring favor to God, guess what I get? The favor of God. Even in the Christmas announcement, there is this inclusion and exclusion. This is not good news for those who do not believe. This is not good news for those who reject. This is not good news for those who twist, adulterate, or manipulate the gospel. It is good news for every person on earth on which the favor of God rests, on which he is pleased with their faith and obedience. And interestingly, the shepherds go from being fearful to being obedient. The moment they see this worship service break out, it motivates them to go and to be near him. And that's what happens. They do. They go. But then something happens that perhaps I've never preached on. I, I don't know that I've ever noticed it, but I found it this week and I wanted to share it with you. This is an emphasis on a passage that perhaps I've Underemphasized. Look what happens beginning in verse 15. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this 
thing. There's so much there. I mean, you know, at some point, if God says something to me and he says it's true, I want to see it. Let's go see it. They could have stayed. In fact, we don't even have a scripture that says the angels demand they go. It's not there. They're not demanded to go. They go out of their own own anticipation. And I don't know, maybe the joy of having contemplated what was just told to them. Look what happens beginning in verse 16. And they went with haste, and guess what they found? Exactly what the angel said. Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they may know the saints. So they show up to this tiny little place, this structure, this cave, this lean-to, this shed. We don't know for sure. But they show up to it. When you think barn, you think wooden barn because you and I live in this area where trees are abundant. The Middle East is not that way. In fact, many people say Jesus was a carpenter. Well, in the loosest sense, that's the King James Version of the translation. But he could have easily been a stone worker. They built as much with stone as they did with wood. If you go today, you'll see that in the Middle East. But, but this was not just some barn of wood like you would picture. It could have been the first story of a two-story structure where people lived on top and the animals sheltered at night. It could have been a cave, as you've seen depicted in some nativities. It may have been nothing more than a lean-to. Here's what it was. It was out of the cold. It was out of the elements. It was the best place they could find for a peasant girl who'd never been a mother to give birth for the very first time. And the best way she knew what to do was to do what all adults do wrap the baby up in swaddling clothes you know what it's like to wrap them up you can't wrap them up tight enough you want them wrapped tight because then they sleep wrap them up in swaddling clothes sustain them one commentary pointed out that the moment he was born he was being confined by men that would ultimately wrap him to a cross wrap him up and put him in a manger to take care of him somewhere for him to rest and that's what they found now the scripture goes on to say something interesting happened All who heard it wondered, shepherds had told them, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. We don't have time to unpack that, but we know there's this theme of Mary having these moments where she's recognizing what has happened. And the shepherds returned. They had to go back. That was their job, right? They let the sheep graze during the day. They gathered them up at night and kept watch over them. Many landowners and flock owners would hire young men who were shepherds to watch over the sheep. At night, they would back them into a ravine or a canyon. They may have a rock structure, but the idea was the sheep rested in the evening and they could keep them away from predation. And then in the daytime, they would lead them to green pastures and still waters, Psalm 23. And so this is why the Bible picks up on the idea of Jesus being the doorway to the sheep and the good shepherd who the sheep know their voice. So so these men had a flock to watch. There was something for them to do. But they left briefly, went into the village, saw Jesus. They shared what they had seen, and worship breaks out again. The joy of the reality of what had taken place overwhelmed their hearts. Look what the scripture says. It says, beginning in verse 20, And the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God. And here comes the line I perhaps have never preached on. For all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. You know where you can find your joy? In his integrity. When they left, they left having put eyes on what heaven said was going to be reality. They saw it. 
And it's interesting that Luke adds this line because he doesn't miss details and he doesn't waste words. Their joy was the overflow of seeing God prove himself yet again. No one denies the birth of Jesus. The most passionate atheists do not deny that Jesus was born. It's very difficult to deny the historicity of his life. More literature has been written about this man than any other figure on earth ever. And even his enemies testified to his death on the cross and a missing body. When he proves himself truthful, I can find joy in his integrity. Have you noticed integrity's gone? Have you noticed? Have you noticed that there is a fear among the population because people don't know who to trust? Everybody's got to spin an angle, a bias. Isn't it good to know that my life can be built on someone who's never broken his promise and Christmas is the greatest promise ever kept in Scripture? God said he's coming and he came. And when you think about that, you think about what he did. Of course, he wouldn't stay in the manger. He would grow up. And what would happen when he grew up? He would go to the cross You know what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews about that? He says, looking to Jesus, we need to be encouraged by looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. Notice this, this is fascinating to me. Who for the joy that was set before him. I don't know about you, but I've seen a lot of depictions of Calvary. I've studied Calvary. I've preached the cross. Like you, I saw the passion of Christ produced several years ago, which was bloody and graphic, upsetting. Nothing about that looks joyful. That's not what the writer of Hebrews means. He's not talking about the cross. He's talking about what comes after the cross. He's talking about what comes after the ascension. What comes after the ascension for Jesus? Perfect, uninterrupted fellowship with the Father forevermore in heaven. And the writer says, when he didn't want to keep going, The joy of the end got him through the greatest suffering the world has ever known. So you can despise the shame. You can endure the cross to be seated at the right hand of God. And you know what happens in that passage there? What so often is happening in Scripture? Joy in the Bible is a noun and a verb. It is a noun in that it is the existence, that underwriting encouragement, that hope. But it's a verb in that I am told to joy in things. Now, what's the English derivation of the noun joy? How do you joy? You rejoice. And the Bible says rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. One more scripture I'll share with you. The scripture says in 1 Peter, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. I have something that I cannot claim the shepherds have. 
I have a full understanding of the story, but they have something I don't have. I've not seen him yet. I'll never see him in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. That wasn't God's plan for my life or your life. I'll never see him die on the cross. That's done. That's why you won't find a crucifix in my house or my church. It's over with. It's finished. I'll never see him standing in an empty tomb. But I will see him. I will see him. And because I'll see him, I'm filled with joy. The writer says that it's inexpressible. And you know what I'm looking forward to? I'm looking forward to that day where we stand before him and he says to us what he told us he would say to the faithful servants. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. But watch this, you've never read this this way before. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Heaven is joy. A vaccine's coming. It's already here. Tomorrow, distribution will begin in certain places according to the latest reports. It's caused us all to think about medicine. I don't know if I've ever used the word contagion more than I've used this. My next dog, I may name him Contagion. <laughs> We're all being careful. Yesterday, I went in several establishments that required me to wear a mask. I did that. As a Christian, I want to submit to authority the best I can. I wash my hands profusely. I have fist bumped you for nine months. I am going to do a bear hug Sunday one day. All you introverts, stay home. <laughs> I can't wait. Every once in a while, I will accidentally forget and shake someone's hand, and it feels so good. I'm looking forward to that. And a lot of it may or may not depend on the effect of medicine. But you know what a preacher said over 100 years ago? His name was C.H. Spurgeon. He's pretty famous. There is a marvelous medicinal power in joy. Most medicines are distasteful. Remember cough syrup when your mama gave it to you? Oh. Most medicines are distasteful, but this, which is the best of all medicines, is sweet to the taste and comforting to the heart. This blessed joy is very contagious. You know what else he said? I love this. One woeful spirit brings a kind of plague into the whole house. One person who is wretched seems to stop all the birds from singing wherever he goes. I've known people like that. But the grace of joy is contagious. Holy joy will oil the wheels of your life's machinery. Holy joy will strengthen you from your daily labor. Holy joy will beautify you and give you influence over the lives of others. So as the world awaits a vaccine, are you giving people the medicine of joy? I want you to check your joy this morning.